our hope is that out of this crisis, there is an opportunity for something more sustainable than we've seen in the 70 years that Israel's existed. There is just no world where that happens under a Trump presidency. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Tali DeGroot, is political director of J Street, a group that organizes pro-Israel, pro-peace Americans to promote policies that uphold Jewish and democratic values that help secure the state of Israel as a democratic homeland for the Jewish people. Tali's been associated with J Street since her college days and has also spent time as a fundraiser for progressive democratic candidates. I asked Tali about her career and about what it's like to work at J Street during the current war and how all that plays into our politics here. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Tali at J Street. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Tali, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Tali. I am currently J Street's national political director. I have been involved in the J Street world for a little over 10 years on my college campus and then working at J Street after I graduated. And then in late 2019, I left J Street and I worked on three congressional races First for Jessica Cisneros in South Texas, then for Nina Turner in Cleveland, Ohio, and then for Maxwell Frost briefly between his primary win in the general election. And on all three campaigns, I had to spend a great deal of time thinking about the U.S.-Israel relationship. So when the opportunity opened to come back to J Street and be the political director and help campaigns navigate this issue, I was excited to do it. Uh, so that is my current role and what I spend most of my time thinking about. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina in a small Jewish community, but very engaged in the Jewish community. What made the Jewish community something you wanted to be engaged in? Like I grew up in Boulder in a very small Jewish community. We were not very involved. It was really a choice by my parents more than it was mine. It was just that was our reality. My mom taught at the Jewish day school and they were they started a little hurrah. So we met with a group of like other 20 other families that we ran our own services. So it was just like a part of our lives. My parents in their 20s, both independently made Aliyah and as in moved to Israel. And that's where they met. And my sister was born in Israel. And if they came back to the States, I was born in Charlotte, but they always had a dream of living in Israel. And so in 2001, my family 
when I was in, going into third grade, we moved back and spent a couple of years in Israel. So supporting Israel, caring about Israel, being a part of the Jewish community was just what I was raised in and got a lot of got a lot out of, you know, there is all religions have their version of values driven life that cares about, you know, the where people think about like, how do we make this world a better place? And and I really, you know, appreciate that part of growing up in the Jewish community. Was living in Israel formative for you? I was pretty little, you know, I was like seven, eight and nine. Yeah, I think it was. And reflecting on it, it is an interesting decision my parents made. You know, 2000 was the outset of the Second Intifada, which was a period of pretty heightened violence and terror attacks in Israel, and also heightened violence by the IDF against Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza. So it was a pretty tense time to be there, but being little, I don't remember much of it. I do remember one time leaving my backpack somewhere and then coming back and there was like a whole bomb squad surrounding my actual Tweety Bird backpack. And, you know, we got family there, friends there. So it was formative in that it, for better or worse, created this connection between me and the state of Israel and one that I would continue to wrestle with until today. So in that way, it was formative for sure. I understand you went to college in North Carolina. How was that for you? It was great. Go Heels. Um, I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I loved it. UNC is a great school, one of the few public universities left that is genuinely more accessible to in-state students. So that was a really great experience for me and where I first connected with J Street also. How did you connect with them there? I did a gap year in Israel between high school and college and then started college in the fall of 2012, which was the first in sort of the 2010s version of the conflicts between Israel and Gaza, where there was persistent rocket fire from Hamas into Israel and then bombings back from Israel. So it was a very tense period on campus like we're seeing now, not as intense. I guess the first one was 2009, actually. So it was the second one. There was a lot of discussion on campus about who are we standing with, who is the U.S. supporting, what do students want to see, and I found there was a J Street chapter, J Street U chapter on campus that was staking out the position that supporting Israel does not mean that you can't also support human rights for Palestinians and an independent Palestinian state. This was under the Obama years. You know, Obama had advocated for and worked towards an agreement from BB to have a settlement freeze. So two states just felt much more achievable then than it does now. But the way that the J Street group on campus was talking about the issue was very compelling to me because it was not binary and it was nuanced, which was important to me. What were the alternatives back then? Like on campus? Yeah. (laughs) There's like Heels for Israel there's parallels to these groups all over. They're like semi-affiliated with APAC nationally, often like go to their conferences and stuff. And they take a position generally that's like, Israel's under threat. We need to stand for Israel. Any discussion of opposing choices by the Israeli government is like airing our dirty laundry and is it necessary to say out loud. 
So that's like one was one option. There was like totally not talking about it. <laughs> had I not grown up with it, such a big part of my life maybe would have been more achievable, but I had to talk about it. And then there was like a Students for Justice in Palestine group that understandably talking about support for the state of Israel as the national homeland for the Jewish people was like not a part of their work, obviously. And so that also didn't feel like the right political home for me as someone who was so immersed in the Jewish community and cared so much about Israel. J Street made a lot more sense. So what was your route out of the university into the working world? Well, I wanted to teach at a high need school and then didn't get into any of the fellowship <laughs> programs that I wanted to go to. So I was very connected to J Street and there was at the time a committee on J Street's national board called the Women's Leadership Forum that was focused on uplifting women peace activists in Israel, including one woman specifically who was just tragically murdered by Hamas on October 7th, named Vivian Silver, and and her work organizing a group called Women Wage Peace. Anyways, the Women's Leadership Forum of J Street's National Board needed staff support. And so I did an internship with J Street that then became a full-time role in the fundraising in the DC office after a couple of months. Fundraising is not an easy job. How did you take to it? One of the things that I loved about J Street U on campus was that we were trained in Saul Linsky style community organizing and connecting with people based on their story of selves and learning how to identify folks' self-interests and make a hard ask to get more involved. And it turned out that fundraising is just like organizing, except the ask isn't come knock on doors with me. It's Will you make a contribution? I actually think I was even better at that than I was at community organizing because it's a little bit more spreadsheets and I'm, I like doing spreadsheets. And also, I just feel so fulfilled by the transfer of wealth from where it's concentrated to the revolution or to the causes that I care about. So that's what I did on the campaigns I worked on, too, was fundraising. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that first stint at J Street. Did it feel like a good political home for you? I mean, you came back, so it seems like that the answer is probably yes. But do you find yourself generally aligned with what the group does? And how do you think about how it fits into the, I don't know, Jewish influence part of American politics? In short, yes. I generally am aligned with the positions that the organization takes. Things are complicated, and I, I, I believe that to make change, there should be an inside game and an outside game, and that when it comes to moving Congress and creating political space in Congress for a more nuanced conversation about Israel, the reality is night and day from pre-J Street and post-J Street. So personally, sure, I wrestle with our positions. I wrestle with what does my average peer think in this in any moment? And what does J Street say? And is it always all the same? Not always, but I'm like really proud to be a part of the organization that is doing the work that J Street has been doing for years. You know, when I started, it was really around building support for the Iran deal. And APAC and other pro-Israel groups were staunchly anti the Iran deal anti the JCPOA and BB came and addressed Congress defying 
sitting President Obama and spoke against congressional support for the JCPOA. And that was really a, a watershed moment in the Democratic Party in terms of the views of the average Democrat on our special relationship with Israel. And most Democrats still, almost all of them, strongly support Israel and strongly support the special relationship. But J Street has just been critical in providing nuance and saying, because we care about Israel, we want to see it continue to thrive, which means we have to speak out when the government does things that run counter to our values and towards the ultimate goal of a two-state solution and diplomatically achieved peace. As crazy as it sounds right now. Does the government in Israel, which over this time has mostly been run from the far right, how does that get discussed within J Street? Oh, I mean, everybody at J Street is just disgusted by BB, what he says, by the far right members of his cabinet. I mean, this whole year leading up, all of 2023, leading up to October 7th, we were in serious, I mean, we were doing everything we could to support the Israeli protest movement that was fighting for the country's democracy, which continues to be, but was really under threat with the right-wing government taking steps to undermine the independent judiciary, which is absolutely critical to having balance and not just one decider of all things in Israel. So we stand with many, many brave Israelis who are fighting back against the just despicable right-wing coalition. What led you to step out and do those congressional campaigns that you mentioned? I wanted to do something different. Like I had been organizing at J Street on my campus and then working at J Street for almost four years and I was ready to do something different. I'd also... I was like, this issue is so tired. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. There's no progress. Like, it's so depressing. And there's so many pressing issues domestically that I also care about. Climate change, women's rights, healthcare, all of, all the things that matter that are, you know, that Americans actually show up to the vote, to the polls to vote on. All those issues matter to me. And I wanted to be, when you work on a campaign, the connection between like, the work you get up every day and do and the impact you want to see on the world is so closely tied. You're like, I'm going to elect this person who's going to make a meaningful difference in our policy. And that is such a wonderful feeling to have to just see that line so clearly. So that's what I was looking for when I joined the campaigns. Was Jessica Cisneros your first one? She's one of the few people running for Congress I've donated to in the last bunch of years because I get solicited so much, I try not to pick places that I'm not connected to. But she was running against a rather conservative Democrat in the primary and came awfully, awfully close a couple times. Tell me about working for her. It was the best. I mean, right. Henry Cuellar is not a real Democrat. He's the, the only Democrat that doesn't support, is not pro-choice. He has an A rating from the NRA. And Jessica when we launched her campaign, she was 26. She was a new lawyer, a new immigration attorney, and was so rooted in her community in Laredo and in the campaign for all the right reasons, just simply because she saw the challenges facing her community, saw that they were not being represented well by their member of Congress and wanted to make a difference. It was great. We had such a good 
team of people, mostly from the district, working so hard. It was hard because we were like we were working, you know, hundred hour weeks. And yeah, it was tough and sad to lose. We got it was like forty eight point two percent of the vote against a sitting sixteen year incumbent who got money from the Koch brothers and Nancy Pelosi came and campaigned for him and yet almost half the district didn't vote for him. So that kind of rocked, actually. <laughs> did you understand why Pelosi did that? Yeah, I mean, Democratic leadership is supposedly stands up for its incumbents. And that's why she was there. And personally, was the nearly congresswoman good to you? Oh, yeah. Jessica is the best. That was a great choice. I mean, as her finance director, I'm very glad that that's one of the campaigns you chose to give to, and we'll take a little credit for that. It's so rare to work for candidates who truly are not in it because they think it's like, oh, so cool, like their own personal ambition. It's pretty rare to find that. And and Jessica was doing it for the right reasons. Do you think she'll be back? I mean, she did run again. I was working for her in 2020 and she ran again in the 2022 cycle uh, and came even closer, lost by just 300 votes. I don't know. I'll leave that. I'll leave that to her. Uh, running for Congress and being a candidate is absolutely grueling. I met with a candidate recently who said this is hard and it should be hard, which I totally agree with. Like it should not be easy to get to Congress and the people that it is easy for, that's a problem. And we need to change our campaign finance laws. So it's not so easy. Personally, as her friend, I'm like, do whatever, (laughs) take care of yourself, but would love to see the back of Henry Claire at some point for sure. You took a stint at Grassroots Analytics, whose founder I've had on the show. What's your connection there? And how was that? Uh, So the founder of Grassroots Analytics, Danny, is my longtime partner. We actually met an Israeli-Palestinian conflict class at UNC. Um, (laughs) So that is just funny. So I've watched Grassroots and supported Danny in all of the phases of the company's development. You know, he was 22 and was like, I'm going to start this business. And I was like, all right, (laughs) you know, have fun. And, you know, believed in him, but it's, so rare for these things to turn out as it did. He identified a need in the Democratic Party for access to technology and fundraising capacity that was really only available to the largest campaigns and folks who already had wealthy networks. And it's just been amazing. And I'm so impressed with them and proud of what they do every day. When I was at Grassroots, I focused on like working closely with select campaigns that we really loved and were excited about to help them do a better job taking advantage of the resources that Grassroots offers. That's what I was doing. Was it tricky to work at a place where your partner was the leader? Definitely. (laughs) That's definitely hard. It was also 2020. It was just a really intense period for everyone. We couldn't see friends as much as we're used to. And and on top of that, we're working together for the first time. We're lucky. We push each other to be the best versions of ourselves and to work hard to improve 
both our professional lives and our personal lives. So it was hard, but I think we both got a lot out of it too. It's pretty cool. You work next for Nina Turner and I don't know her except having followed her in the press a little bit. And I have had guests tell me behind the scenes that she is a difficult person. I have no idea whether that's true. I mean, some of the people out of the Bernie campaign, some of the people who are to her right, she also has her strong supporters, of course. What was your take on Nina Turner? Nina, for me, Senator Turner, as as, uh, she should be called. State Senator Turner. State Senator Nina Turner. Um, I found her to be a lovely, warm, and compelling person. I think she is a generational orator. I heard her speak like probably, you know, sometimes two, three times a day and almost every time would be close to move to tears. She had a way of capturing the needs and hope that the progressive movement has at times had in our political infrastructure and our democracy to really deliver better lives for everyone. She's very caring. Like you go, you would go over to her house and she would be like, can I get you a snack? Can I get, you know, like she's just like a, someone who cared about the people around her personally and working towards a, you know, broader goal. There were definitely issues with how the campaign was run. There were like, you know, a lot of people making decisions. And I think that we weren't as prepared as we needed to be for dealing with with like the bowl of shit comment. There were definitely issues, but as a person, I mean, SNT is great, really. You said earlier that in these congressional campaigns that you sometimes had to navigate the some of the Jewish political questions, relationship to Israel and stuff. Did that come up with Nina Turner? Yeah, I mean, that was a really watershed campaign for... I mean, if you look at the news right now, it is just seized by, you know, what is APAC going to do? How is Israel going to impact Democratic primaries? And Nina Turner's campaign was the start of that. We, as the campaign, raised $7 million for a Democratic primary, which was record-breaking. And overnight, like APAC and an organization, Democratic Majority for Israel, which is not exactly APAC, but they have many of the same donors and generally fall on the same side in these Democratic primaries is the first time that they tried their hand and they spent over six million, close to seven million also against Senator Turner in the last three weeks of the primary. And we went from being up 20 in the polls from losing by seven, like almost instantly on Election Day. And I think it proved that something that we knew at grassroots for some time that spending has an enormous impact in Democratic primaries specifically, even more than in competitive general elections where there's much higher knowledge generally when voters go to the poll, knowing the difference between Democrats and Republicans, knowing the difference between two Democrats, the amount of money the candidate has makes a huge difference. And if you are an organization with access to tens of millions in capital that you can just dump in through independent expenditures, you can, anyways, so yeah, we were uh, <laughs> navigating this issue a lot. I mean, his race on it had a huge impact. How did she and you respond to that happening? If you were committed, obviously, and rooting for her, and she would, and she was approaching the primary in such a big lead, to have that, that must create a lot of bitterness and anger. I grew up with this issue. 
I grew up seeing how you say the word Palestine and some people just can't. I grew up seeing the triggers around this issue and understanding how charged it is. And for many candidates, that is a very steep learning curve because there are so many tripwires and it is so perplexing because when you look at the situation, it's clear that the status quo is unsustainable, that the reality of life for millions of Palestinians is unacceptable, and that you should just be able to talk about that. So I think for SNT and for me, it was a lot of trying to explain how both communities approach the issue grounded in a great deal of historical trauma and trying to convey why people react the way that they do and also craft a strategy that would be winning politically, which obviously (laughs) we did not win. But it's hard to win when you're up against those kind of resources. But yeah, I think it was, you know, mostly about just like, she was running for kitchen table issues. She was running because she grew up in a community in Cleveland that is tremendously underinvested in and needs greater resources. And then to have so much of the campaign be sucked into talking about the U.S.-Israel relationship. It was just like, there's a lot of (laughs) navigating to do. There's something very frustrating for me about politics when it starts to get hit on the head with some black and white version of something that is more complicated, especially when you're in the losing end of that and you know that the attack is unfair, you understand it, but it works. It works in a circumstance to make your candidate lose, let's say. Trump campaigns on that a lot, like on simplifying something and hammering it. And there's a lot of fairly successful politicians who employ that tactic of oversimplification. I don't exactly know how you defend against that or how you sort of talk reasonably to people when things are are heightened? It's a great question. And I think that the way the media works too, like media is so driven by clicks and what gets attention and like extremely nuanced take on all of the various angles is not going to be as inviting as as a headline that's like candidates who don't toe the line on Israel will face it's a lot easier to just write a simplified headline that makes something black and white. It's not very easy to be the president of an Ivy League institution and go before Congress and try to talk about nuance and freedom of speech, as we just saw. Right. People try to make it so binary. I can disagree with someone and still fundamentally believe they need to have the right to say what they're saying. And then somebody will turn around and say, aha, J Street supports that. Freedom of speech is important. <laughs> and yet there is something that, that goes too far. And finding that line at any moment is probably more than most smart people can handle. What was the Alliance for Safety and Justice? The Alliance for Safety and Justice is a nonprofit that focuses on criminal justice reform and public safety solutions that similarly don't create a binary to, in order to make our communities safer, there need to be greater investments in mental health programs, in victim services. Often people that commit crimes have themselves been victims of crimes. And there are 
all sorts of very successful state-based legislation that provides support for people who have been victims of crime, and that reduces future interaction with the justice system. I worked at the Alliance for Safety and Justice for eight or nine months, and it was Was great. that fundraising again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, yeah, they, uh, most of their they're supported by many large grants, and I was building out an individual giving program. Tell me about the time you spent with Maxwell Frost. Another great, fun candidate who's in it for the right reasons, who built a team of many people from the district who believed that this young person could uh, represent the community and really bring results and drive a narrative that re- reflected. Orlando and his constituents in Florida. And that was interesting because the it was a deep blue seat. So the Democratic primary was sort of the general. So when I was there, we were working with the other Democrats who had much tougher elections in Florida. It was not a great year for Democrats in Florida, uh, but we did our best. And then we also spent some time thinking about, you know, assuming things went well and he did win the general, what would his team look like on Capitol Hill? And how would he approach the transition from campaign to Congress, which is intense. The skills that make someone good at being a candidate are not necessarily the same as what would make someone a good member of Congress. We spent a lot of time thinking about that transition. What do you think people should know about him that they might not? I think people know a lot about him, but it's all true. (laughs) He's really cool. He's really down to earth. He's really fun. One of the most wild moments that I was like, wow, I'm really working for the Gen Z candidate is I walked into the office and all of the lights were off and there was music blasting. And my coworker was like, you need to hide. And so I went and and hid and I didn't understand what was going on. And then it was like Maxwell and someone else on the campaign had Nerf guns. And then there was like a Nerf gun battle in the office. And I was like, how does 30 feel so old (laughs) right now? (laughs) It was a blast. Again, him and Jessica are similar in that, you know, they, you know, she came close to being a member of Congress. He is a member of Congress. And yet when you talk to him, there's no like pretense that he's not just like a person, too. So going back to J Street, you said there's an opening for political director. It seems a little bit, at least today, like putting your head back in the mouth of the lion. What made you do that? And how's it been? So again, personal and professional, you know, the campaign world chasing better opportunities means moving, which is part of the problem and why it's hard to retain talent full time on campaigns. I wanted to be in D.C. So personally, it just made sense to take the J Street job, which is here in D.C. It's sort of like you can run, but you can't hide. Like I tried to work on other issues, but none of them matter to me as much as this one. Now that I know, right, now that I'm so immersed in what's going on in Israel, what's going on in Gaza and the West Bank, I feel a tremendous obligation to do something about it. And I feel very empowered and like my values and my actions are aligning when I'm helping candidates figure out how to navigate this issue, working with my colleagues to advocate for legislation that is nuanced in its approach. I have not touched on that issue too much in my life, but yet as October 7th, my birthday approached, my sister who dates an Israeli man was in Israel a couple weeks before. And in fact, 
uh, rocket hit right near the Airbnb, if I have the story right after she was out of there. And my two good friends of mine in D.C. had a cousin and spouse taken to Gaza as hostages. And one of them is dead and one of them is back. And it's hard as a Jewish person not to respond to October 7th in a defensive way, I think, about Jewish people and about the response that then followed, even though it's very hard to be supportive of the of war making, especially when so many people who aren't the aggressors get killed or injured. What's it been like to be at J Street during this incredibly trying period? Thanks for sharing your own experience with it. I think one of the hardest things about this whole issue is that Jewish Americans are expected to have something to say just by nature of being Jewish. And some of us do. And I feel for people who are would not want to engage on it, but are expected to because of their religion. It's been very intense at J Street. Many of us have family in Israel. Many people lost loved ones. The woman I mentioned at the outset, Vivian Silver, you can read amazing things. She was an amazing advocate for peace, a real hero and someone who held on to hope through so many dark times and losing her and, you know, a coworker lost the first cousin at the music festival. It's hard to describe a professional environment where folks were dealing with so much personal loss and trauma. And then an understanding that Israel had to do something to their both a, a right and an obligation to protect its citizens. And then that was to be executed by a government that we all deeply distrust. It's been complicated. It's been charged. And we've at least had a community to navigate it with, um, a community that is responsive to a diverse set of constituents, like even in the center left that J Street operates in, we have a tent that is diverse in its views. And I think that's part of what has made our positioning successful is that we are responding to a diverse audience. It's been hard and it's been heartening to see just how trusted a voice J Street is. Candidates are really, which is what I focus on as our endorsements, like really are looking to us for guidance on this issue, which has been, yeah, it's felt reassuring that we're a trusted voice. One of the things that's clear that's happened politically in the United States over this is that it splinters some of the Democratic team. The Arabs in Michigan, for example, quite reasonably angry. And Biden having taken a pretty firm stand, although maybe less so than is perceived by what he's doing behind the scenes or, and what has evolved over time. But American politics is a good part of where J Street operates. What are you guys looking forward to as we both face just regular politics and Trumpian politics? J Street's mission is to create political space and to advocate for strong U.S. leadership towards a two-state solution, towards a diplomatic solution. That 
centers both the, the right to self-determination for both peoples. And in this crisis, we are pushing for the resolution to be one that is lasting, to one that, that is diplomatic in nature and not just ongoing occupation, ongoing siege of Gaza. That is true. So our hope is that out of this crisis, there is an opportunity for something more sustainable than we've seen in the 70 years that Israel's existed. There is just no world where that happens under a Trump presidency and under a Republican-controlled House and Senate. So we are going to be deeply engaged in reelecting the president and hopefully taking back Democratic control and majority in the House and defending our champions in the Senate as much as Israeli democracy is under threat. Those threats to democracy are paralleled here. So we're going to be deeply engaged in the pack that J3 has that I run last cycle did about 10 million to Democrats. We want to do that much and more this time as well. What does the national political director of J Street do? What's the role there exactly? So J Street, so we have a conduit pack. So it's kind of like our own little act blue <laughs> where you can go onto our website and you can give to the candidates and it does sort of double duty where a donor's contribution is attributed to them. The candidate knows it's from them. 100% of funds get to the campaign, but it's clear that it comes through J Street. So it's also a signal to those candidates that taking nuanced political positions like the ones J Street advocates for is not just good policy, it's also smart politics. So I manage the strategy for the PAC, who we endorse, who we prioritize raising money for, who we hold events for, that kind of thing. J Street endorses a majority of House Democrats and uh, also a majority of Senate Democrats and the president. That's what I do all day, every day. Sounds tiring a little bit. Do you have a relationship, J Street, with groups that are pro-Palestinian? Yes. My, I guess I would say J Street is pro-Palestinian. So we are pro for sure. <laughs> That's where one group, are, is there a specific group you have in mind? I, like a no, I mean, group? I really don't know that space. So, but I'm assuming it's a big country and there's relatives of the people in Gaza and West Bank and beyond here. And I'm assuming that there are interest groups that they would think represent them in our pluralist country. Do you guys talk? There's other members of the senior team who have a significant, just like we're coordinating with other groups. Our home is in the American Jewish community. So many times we're coordinating with other American Jewish groups. As political director, I engage with organizations across the democratic spectrum. So groups on the left, like Justice Democrats I talk to or Working Families Party. But then I also am coordinating with more establishment groups, the Congressional Black Caucus Pack, Bold Pack, the DCCC, the DNC. Like I am constantly in collaboration and coordination with that litany of organizations that have taken different positions on the war or no position. Have you run into If Not Now? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> most, it's not such a secret that most of the people that organize, if not now, are J Street U 
like our student movement alum. I know I was in college. I organized with almost all of them. We know each other, if not now, has been coordinating pretty closely with Jewish Voice for Peace. We take a different approach. We have different positions. I have been pushing myself personally, and I think organizationally, it is horrifying what's going on, and people feel an imperative to act. And I respect and appreciate that people are figuring out their own ways to do that, even if it's not the way I would approach it or the way J Street is approaching it. Do you think that anything surprising will happen with the Jewish vote in 2024? I think that the election is going to ride on whatever is top of mind for people in October of 2024. So maybe J Street polls American Jews every election cycle, and it's over 80% of American Jews vote Democratic. They turn out in very high numbers. All signs point towards, it's like someone giving money, like the most the highest indicator of that somebody's going to give you money is that they already gave you money one time. It's like the best data that we have about how the American Jewish community is going to vote is what they've already been doing, which is that they'll vote in very high numbers for Democrats. Biden has a good relationship with J Street? Yep. 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 The president has spoken at our conferences before. We've endorsed his campaign for re-election. We bundled about $2 million for the president in 2020. And if I do my job well, we'll hopefully double that this time. We've been grateful as an organization for the president's leadership through this crisis. And we'll continue pushing the administration to use diplomacy well. How does the U.S.-Israel relationship impact candidates for federal office? It used to be that we would say, that the U.S.-Israel relationship takes a really outsized role in congressional races and that it is a shame that candidates are forced because of the moneyed influence on this issue to talk about this so much. We're in a different reality where there's an ongoing war, one that could totally spin out into a regional or even global conflict. So rightfully, candidates are expected to talk about this issue. And it's just really sensitive. They have to, you know, think about it and navigate it carefully. The Republican Party seems to have a really weird relationship with Israel stuff right now. A lot of the loudest mouths don't seem to really understand what's going on, but they seem to be trumpeting a lot lately. Do you understand what's going on over there on that side? Well, I think that there's like a shared world view in some ways between like the BBs and the right-wing Israel's coalition and the extremely right-wing American politicians, the threats to democracy, like I said, are, are paralleled. I also think that the Republicans see this as an opportunity to divide the Democratic Party. There have been like four or five votes on the House floor on resolutions condemning anti-Semitism, but doing so in such a way that squashes free speech. And it's this like gotcha opportunity for Republicans, which is just, I mean, just really gross politicization of an issue that is very serious. There was a resolution voted on the floor last week that said explicitly anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. And yeah, they're just like using the war as a chance to divide and weaken Democrats in a moment when Israelis and Palestinians are fighting for their security and their lives and American Jews and 
Arab Americans, Muslim Americans are also facing a ton of discrimination. It's not surprising, but it's gross. What else should I have asked you about your work or the politics of this time, I guess? I think we really covered it, actually. <laughs> I think we covered everything. I, I wish that I had, I would love to hear more from you of how you're feeling in this moment and what you're thinking about this issue's influence on our elections and what you're hoping to see. Well, I, I found it to be surprisingly tricky when I have had family members asking me in horror what Israel is up to and having a sense that young people whose antenna for justice is often more sensitive than older people making parallels between the Israeli government and bad actors at other times in history. If there's a homeland for people who you're related to in the world that have had a rough time in history at times, one, you don't want to have a very short-term view of what's going on as being the only thing going on, because honestly, you can't answer any question without talking through a lot of history and what you said, a lot of shared trauma. And I'm not an expert in those things. I almost need to prepare for conversation. So it's a hard time for me. It's just a really tough time. And yeah. It's also one of the things about governing that when you are in charge, over time, the realities of the world cause you to, to take stands that somebody is going to be unhappy with. There are advantages to incumbency that mean that about two-thirds of presidents get reelected. But there are also tremendous disadvantages of incumbency that include like getting held responsible for things that you may not have caused like inflation or wars in other parts of the world. And so when an election has so much writing on it, how do you navigate that as a candidate or as a party or as a movement? Those are tricky things. Absolutely. Yeah, there was a great article. I forget what it was in, but I'll find it. And I'll send it to you about, you know, how Biden's approach towards Israel, Palestine had been pretty hands off and he'd been focused understandably more on China and Ukraine and other and domestic issues. And the October 7th and the two months since has proven that that was that 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 was not a possible position. It is just too live and the status quo too unsustainable. And he certainly did not cause this war. It's now one of the things on his plate. Yep, it is. Mm, yeah. Well, Tali, it is really great to talk to you. I, I'm glad to understand more about you and see how we have an intelligent, thoughtful person in, in a role that's important at this time. So glad you're there. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for the thoughtful conversation, the good discussion. I'm looking forward to continuing it. Thanks for all that you do on this podcast and otherwise improving our democracy. So good to talk. Take care. That was Tali. She is at jstreet.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. 
Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.